NASA's got big plans to send people to the moon and then on to Mars. What are we gonna do with the moon? And how will that lead to human footprints on the red planet? Let's ask the person in charge, the NASA administrator. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. This season is all about the moon. With me today is the NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine. Jim became the administrator in April of the last year. He comes to NASA at a really exciting time with all kinds of launches and landings and, and new themes for us to explore. Jim has been in Congress where he focused heavily on space policy. He's been the director of the Tulsa, Oklahoma Air and Space Museum and Planetarium, and he was a Navy aviator in both active duty U.S. Navy and U.S. Navy Reserve. And then after that, He's been in the Oklahoma Air National Guard. So aviation has been at a lot of what you've been doing. In 2015, Space News named Jim as one of the five game changers in the world of space. And I can guarantee you that's exactly right. Welcome to Gravity Assist. Well, thank you, Dr. Green. It's good to be here. Well, you know, were you always interested in space or what was that thing that sparked your attention, what we call a gravity assist? So I would I would say I was always interested in aviation uh, from from the day I was in kindergarten. In fact, uh, when I got my wings of gold as a Navy pilot, uh, that that particular day, uh, my my mom actually brought me a picture that I drew in kindergarten. And we were supposed to draw what it was. What, what did you want to be when you grew up? And I had a picture of uh, myself standing next to an airplane with a hat on. And I guess that hat indicated uh, that's what I thought pilots wore with that, a hat. So uh, so I've always been interested in aviation. I always wanted to be a pilot. Of course, um, uh, growing up, that was just kind of, uh, you know, I, my entire bedroom was covered with pictures of airplanes, old airplanes, new airplanes, fighter jets, et cetera. Um, but eventually, as as you mentioned, uh, when when I when I grew up, I became a, a pilot in the military and eventually got elected to Congress. And in Congress, I found myself on a number of critically important committees: the um, the Strategic Forces Subcommittee of the Armed Services Committee is responsible for all of uh, the United States of America's military space-based capabilities. Um, I was also on the Space Subcommittee of the Science Committee. Of course, the Space Subcommittee oversees NASA, and I was chairman of the Environment Subcommittee of the Science Committee. And the Environment Subcommittee, of course, oversees NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, of which 40% of their budget is space-related activities. So wow. for five and a half years in Congress, I was, I was very focused on space activities and our nation and some of the challenges that we had. And uh, I actually drafted a bill called the American Space Renaissance Act, which was, in my view, a, you know, a comprehensive look at the American space enterprise. What do we need to do to make America the most competitive place on the planet for space industry and, the, and make you know, space safe for all operators? And so, um, you know, I, I've always been in, in, you know, interested in aviation. And of course, when I came to Congress, I really got involved in space issues. So why do you think NASA has such a great support structure from Congress? Oh, it, it, it is amazing. And, it and is. it's unlike anything in the U.S. government, which is um, you've got Republicans and Democrats alike yep. that both love NASA. It's one of those agencies. It has broad bipartisan support. It's interesting. You know, there are these little pockets where you could say, 
you know, well, Republicans are for the moon and Democrats are for Mars. You know, they, they you know, they try to mm. break out those things, but it all falls apart really quickly because every, everybody understands how important NASA is to science, to discovery, to exploration, and everybody supports it. And, um, you know, we have a, we have an era right now where the president and the vice president are increasing their budget requests for NASA. And at the same time, even before I can get to the Hill to advocate for those increased budget requests, um, you know, the Congress in a bipartisan way has even plussed it up from those budget requests. Yeah, I know. It's a wonderful time. So uh, right now, I think we're in a great spot. It makes my job as the NASA administrator much easier than it otherwise would be. Uh, but, uh, but there's a lot of support on the Hill, a lot of support from the executive branch. And of course, as you mentioned, it's a very exciting time to be at the head of NASA. Well, you're the first former congressman to serve as a NASA administrator. So what do you think the advantages or even the disadvantages are? Well, the I think the disadvantages are people have assumptions about you based on what political party right. you're in. Um, and, and, you know, my what I've been working on really hard is making people understand that when it comes to space, those assumptions don't, they're not relevant here. Um, and space is, as I said, it's very bipartisan. It has a lot of support on both sides of the of the hill in Washington, D.C. So that, that could be a disadvantage. But what I've found overwhelmingly as an advantage is the fact that, um, you know, I have to go and, and defend budget requests. And I have to um, make sure that when we have a cost overrun, that Congress can be supportive of making sure that we, we get the job done in the end. And I have wonderful relationships on the Hill on, on both sides of the aisle, people who have been overwhelmingly supportive of this effort. Um, and when you look back in history, one of the best NASA administrators in history is James Webb. Yeah. And he came from the Hill. He, he was a, an appropriations staffer on the Hill. And then he went to the Bureau of Budget. In fact, I think he went to the Treasury first, and then he became the director of the Bureau of the Budget. Um, and then, and then the, the president that he worked for, um, you know, termed out. And when, when that term was over, um, he, went, he went back to Oklahoma, which happens to be my home state. Mm -hmm. He went back to Oklahoma and got involved in the, the energy industry. Uh, and then his party came back into power in the White House and he came back um, to Washington, D.C. as the NASA administrator at a time when people really didn't know or understand what NASA even was. We had not even flown into space, let alone gone to the moon at that point. Only the dreams. It was only, yeah. And, and the question was, who do you put in charge of this agency that is really about imagination and dreaming? And, mm -hmm. and they put a gentleman in charge that came from the political environment. And of course, uh, he worked for a president who said that we were going to go to the moon in, in 10 years, um, yeah. by the end of the decade. Yeah. And he said that in 1962. Uh, and sure enough, by the end of the decade, uh, we were on the surface of the moon. Now, James Webb was an impressive character in, in American history for a whole host of reasons. But without his leadership, remember the Apollo 1 fire um, yeah. that ultimately killed three of our proudest astronauts. Yeah, a seminal event in NASA's history. And Congress was gnashing teeth. And, and there was question whether or not we were going to continue the Apollo program at all. Uh, but because of James Webb and his leadership and his relationships on the Hill, uh, he was able to to um, to compel a solution that ultimately got us to the surface of the moon and fulfilled President Kennedy's dream, which was uh, to land 
a man on the surface of the moon and bring him home safely. And they, and they we, we did that. Yeah, we did. You know, my experience in NASA has been that the highs are just unbelievable. Our launches, our landings, our flybys, and all the stuff that we do and discover. But sometimes when we have some lows, they're 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 really hard to take. But we have to move on. It is. And and here's the thing that's important to remember: we take risks at NASA, and the question is why. Because what we're learning and the science, the, the discovery, ultimately um, our understanding of ourselves is important. Rock climbers take risks, hang gliders take risks. What we're doing is we're taking risks for an entirely different purpose, which is to improve science, improve discovery. And if you go back to the Apollo era, it was to, it was to establish a political and economic system that was superior to that of our opponents. Um, and, and because of the risks that people take, and in fact, some of the lows that we went through, um, we did establish the United States of America as um, the one place on the planet that um, is capable of preserving more freedom than any other place on the planet. And indeed, all that comes back to uh, improving life here on Earth. Absolutely. When you think about the way we communicate, navigate, produce food and energy, um, the way we do disaster relief, provide national security, predict weather, understand the climate, even do banking with the GPS signal. Um, the, every, every single one of us listening to this podcast right now, all of us are dependent on space in ways that we don't even think about on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet, um, and, and yet uh, we are. Mm -hmm. And it's important for us to remember all of those capabilities were a result of a trail blazed by NASA. You know, over the short several months that you've been administrator of NASA, what's really been the most surprising things that have come up for you? Well, um, I'll tell you, there is no shortage of opinions or ideas on what NASA ought to be doing. Uh, and, and I don't know that that's a surprise, uh, but it's a bit relentless and uh, in a good way, uh, again, there, there is no shortage of brilliant people with great ideas. The challenge is our budget is as, as great as it is and is becoming better all the time. Uh, we do have limitations. We have to make tough decisions. And, um, and so, uh, you know, getting through those tough decisions is sometimes not as easy as you might think. Well, you know, this is why when we, um, from a science perspective, interact with the National Academy of Science, we get some really important input from them where they, the community of scientists get together and they sort of prioritize the top things that we ought to be working on, things that will just be uh, transformational in our understanding of the of the physics and in the environments that we're going into. A absolutely, and thank you for bringing that up because it enables me as the NASA administrator to say, look, we're, we're not looking the, at this from a political perspective. We're looking at it from a scientific perspective. And the National Academies provide us that, uh, the guidance that ultimately if we follow, we can prevent NASA from becoming a political agency, which uh, we do not want it to become. Right. Well, what do you hope NASA missions will discover in the future? What are the things that you're waiting to have happen? There's so much, but I think um, the biggest thing that most people are are anxiously anticipating is, are we going to be able to find life? I mean, that's the, that's the biggest thing. And of course, you, Dr. Green, as the chief scientist, and I've heard you talk <laughs> about it a lot, the what we're finding on, on Mars right now with um, complex organic compounds and 
when you think about um, the methane cycles uh, being perfectly aligned with the seasons of Mars, and for the first time really discovering liquid water one and a half kilometers below the surface of Mars, these discoveries have all happened since I've been at NASA. Yeah, I know. And 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 so the question is, we know, um, of course, from my discussions with you, uh, we know that there used to be, you know, a. a a magnetosphere around Mars and it used to be two thirds covered with water and it used to have a thick atmosphere. And sometime, uh, you know, a billion plus years ago, all of that changed. The question is this, we know that it was at one point habitable. Doesn't mean that it was inhabited. The question is, are we going to discover life there now? And, and the, the answer is we don't know, but the probability based on what we're understanding, the probability keeps going up. And it's also true, you know, you ask about what am I looking forward to, to discovering? You think about the moons around Saturn and Jupiter. You think about entire water worlds, worlds, moons composed of nothing but water with an ice shell, which means that there could potentially, the ice shell represents, you know, basically blockage of of uh, radiation in those harsh radiation environments. Protective environment for life to perhaps uh, grow and live. Absolutely. So there's the the one thing that drives me is ultimately, are we going to be able to discover life that's not on Earth? And if we do, it really changes everything. Yeah, we're on the hunt for it. And it's uh, it's getting better and better every every day. I think as we continue to make methodical measurements, not only in our solar system, but, you know, in the exoplanet area, which is another just exciting realm of, um, of possibilities, um, it, it really um, um, pushes us to go further and further. And, and you think about the exoplanet, what was it, 15 years ago, we didn't know, we hadn't discovered a single exoplanet. Is that right? 15 years ago? It was about 92 when they first found one. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so, so think about, and we went from one exoplanet to... Probably 4,000 planets with verifiable uh, orbits around stars. Which, uh, I mean, the, there's... The, the, what we're able to do today with the technology that we have and even more technology that we're developing, um, the, the, the idea that life is unique to planet Earth um, that idea, I think, is going to diminish quickly. Yeah. Well, as you say, um, right now, uh, we know enough about exoplanets to be able to predict that there's probably more planets in our galaxy than there are stars. That's incredible. Yeah, it? it really is when you think about it. Now, is there any particular mission you're excited about? Oh, there's uh, there's a, a, a good number <laughs> of them. Um, I, I, you know, the, the president's space policy directive one takes us back to the moon. And yeah. I want to be clear, we're going forward to the moon, not back to the moon. We're going forward to the moon. Now, why is that important? Going back, you know, to the Apollo era, 1969, when we first landed humans on the moon, all the way up until 2008, 2009, we thought the moon was bone dry. But you know, all that changed when we found indications of water trapped in permanently shadowed craters in the North and South Poles. We now know that there may be as much as 100 to 200 million tons of water ice in these craters. That discovery alone should have changed our trajectory back to the moon. What else do we not know? So the president's space policy directive says we're gonna to go to the moon and we're going to do it in a way that's sustainable. This is not going to be Apollo again. We're not going to go back with flags and footprints, come home and never go back. This time, we're going to go to stay. 
What does that mean? That means every piece of the architecture has to be reusable. People are familiar with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos building reusable rockets. That drops the cost of access to space and it increases the access to space. So we, so that's what we need. We need reusable rockets, but that's just the beginning. We need tugs between low earth orbit and the moon lunar orbit uh, to be reusable as well. And we are building, as, as you're aware, we're starting the process of a gateway, which is in essence a, a space station around the moon, smaller than the International Space Station, but a space station nonetheless, capable of human habitation that will be around the moon for a very long period of time. And we need reusable landers that can go back and forth from the gateway to the surface of the moon. So what does all of this mean? This means that we're gonna have more access to more parts of the moon than ever before in human history. And we're not gonna miss things like we did from 1969 all the way up until 2009. 40 years of not understanding that there is in fact a water cycle on the surface of the moon, which is just, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to even think about that we could have missed that. So, so all, of that, all of that being the case, we need reusability, but we also have opportunities because we have commercial and international partners that didn't exist during the Apollo era. So that gives us more opportunities to do more things on the way to, around, and at the surface of, uh, the, surface of the moon than ever before. And ultimately, we want everything to be replicable at Mars. So we go to the moon for a whole host of scientific reasons, but we also go to the moon as a proving ground for technologies and life support and in situ resource utilization, using the resources of the moon to live. We, we go to the moon to prove that we can ultimately go to the Mars, uh, go to Mars uh, to live. Well, you know, I'm really personally excited about the gateway in, in the fact that its orbit allows it uh, for uh, communication with uh, instruments and rovers and landers that could be on that far side of the moon. And we've never been there, and yet it has got some fascinating regions that we would love to explore. And, you know, I, I hear you talk about instruments. Um, the idea that we could do astrophysics from the far side of the moon where it's exceptionally quiet yeah. is... Uh, it, that in itself could be game changing. Yeah, indeed. It opens up a frequency range that we just can't get to here on Earth because of all the radio interference that goes on. Absolutely. Well, you know, if you were to visit any planet in our solar system, which one would it be and why? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I get to visit any planet in our solar system. <laughs> oh, I, I, I mean, I, I'd have to say Mars um, because we're, we're, we're learning so much right now about Mars. And I really believe that if we're going to find life in our solar system, um, that's probably the, the place that we're going to find it easiest. Uh, doesn't mean that it's not on Enceladus or Europa, but uh, certainly I think Mars is, is the, the one place in our solar system that's the most like Earth and that historically would have been the most habitable. Uh, what do you hope the James Webb Telescope will discover about planets outside our solar system? Another amazing capability that we're developing. So James Webb is going <laughs> to enable us to see all the way back to the very beginning of the universe, cosmic dawn, the very first light. Now, of course, James Webb is going to be in the infrared spectrum. And so what it's detecting is very, very faint, very trace um, heat signatures. Uh, and, and in order to do so, it has to be extremely cold. So it's going to be a million miles away from Earth. 
Um, and of course, it's you know going to have a sunshield that makes it very, very cold on the opposite side of the sunshield, plus a cryo cooler that brings it almost down to absolute zero. Uh, in fact, I think they say it's six Kelvin, which is uh, incredibly Pretty cold. Pretty close. Yes, and, yeah. <laughs> so this is going to enable us to see the very first light in the universe. In the, and it's in the IR spectrum. And of course, it's because as the as the universe expands, the, those those wavelengths have expanded with the universe, and so we're going to have to detect it in the IR. But but either way, we're going to be able to see what the universe looked like at the very beginning, and it's going to help us understand and model ultimately how the universe got to be uh, the way it is right now. Um, and it's going to help us to see all the way out to as far as we can see uh, to to the edge of the universe, even even the edge of the universe right now, which um, will really. Uh, fundamentally change the way we we understand physics, quite frankly. Yeah, it'll make uh, really transformational observations, not only in astrophysics, but also does uh, some exoplanet work, and it tracks objects from Mars on outward. So it can even make important discoveries within the solar system. It is an incredibly versatile telescope. And so when you say exoplanets, we're, we are going to be able to use James Webb to look at nearby stars and planets that orbit those nearby stars. That's right. That's amazing. It is. Well, you know, it's. Not, I don't think it's well known uh, that uh, the first A in NASA is really aeronautics. Absolutely. And many of our astronauts, of course, are pilots. Uh, and you had mentioned that you were always wanting to be a pilot. What kind of planes did you fly? So I started off, uh, when, uh, when I graduated from college, I joined the United States Navy, and I started off flying T-34s, which is a single-engine turboprop, and then T-44s, which is a two-engine turboprop. And then I went to the T-2 Buckeye, which, of course, is a, uh, it's not of course, but it's a jet. Uh, it was the first plane that I ever landed on an aircraft carrier. Wow. And then I uh, and then I went to the E-2 Hawkeye, which is a, a, a large command and control aircraft. It has a big radar dish on top of it so that we can see a, a, a long ways away and ultimately do command and control of, of a theater of battle from an airborne platform. Wow. So it really gave me a, a, a kind of a big picture um, view of, of uh, well, warfare, uh, which is not always fun, but sometimes necessary. But I, I did that and I flew the E-2 Hawkeye in Iraq and Afghanistan um, back in 2002, 2003. And then, uh, and then I transitioned to the F-18 Hornet, uh, where I flew at the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center, which is the, the parent command to Top Gun. And my job there was to study how the enemies of the United States fly and then fly those profiles to get shot down by the Top Gun instructor. So if I was getting shot down, then it was a good day for America because they were getting good training. Um, but I did Red Air. I flew as an aggressor for three years from 2004 to 2007. Well, what is something about piloting jets that, I, that uh, the public uh, would be surprised to hear about? Uh, probably that it's not, it's really not that much different than piloting a you know a propeller aircraft. Um, it, you know the you're you're moving a lot faster, but you're going to be in airspace that's a lot bigger. Um, the the technology, of course, embedded in a fighter aircraft is pretty amazing uh, to the point where you know the pilot him or herself is one input into maybe twelve different flight control computers. Uh, and 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 ultimately, um, the, the the machine is going to give you whatever it wants to give you, and and you can tell it what you want it to do, but it's going to it's going to give you something entirely different. 
uh, in some cases. I remember flying really slow at one point when I was early in my F-18 flying days and I was just flying straight and level. I remember looking out at my wing and watching my ailerons, you know, go up and down. The, the, the plane is flying even though I'm not flying it. Um, I thought I was straight and level and in fact I was, but the plane was making tiny little corrections the entire time I was just, you know, steady there. Wow. Yep. Well, you know, as I said, uh, many of our astronauts have been pilots in the past. Um, uh, did you at any time uh, while you were flying think you'd become an astronaut? You know, I, I never really did. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a Navy pilot, I did, I did nine years on active duty. And of course, um, uh, to go beyond that, I, you know, I would have I uh, needed more, more time in the military. I did nine years on active duty, and then I went to Cornell University to get an MBA. So my goal was ultimately to maybe get a job on Wall Street or do something like that. Now, that never materialized because, um, you know, uh, as life happens, my, my wife's father passed away. Uh, her mother got multiple sclerosis. We had this big, you know, burden to move back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, sure, which which sure. we did. Um, and instead of instead of working on Wall Street, I was working at, at a nonprofit air and space museum um, and flying uh, counter drug operations as a Navy reservist at that point. So life takes its twists and turns. It does. And you never know what direction it's going to take you, but it can all work out. Yeah. You know, I've been fascinated by the aeronautics research that NASA does. You know, when you sit in a plane and you look out onto the wing, that very end of the wing, there are little pieces of metal that jut up. These are called winglets, and they were created from research that was done by NASA. You know, you, I have I've been you know watching um, the progression of these of these airliners, and you mm -hmm. see, you know, the how big the engines are getting on the airliners, and I remember thinking. You know, and when I flew E2 Hawkeyes, if you started going too fast and you started going downhill at the same time that you've got, you know, your 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 propeller is spinning, and if, if you if you hit a certain speed, the tips of your propeller would actually go supersonic, and it would create a, tr a terrible noise and a lot of vibration in the cockpit. And I remember thinking about these big fans, you know, these high bypass engines that are now on the airliners. They're just massive. Yeah. Well, that that really those that that bypass air acts, those fans act a lot like a propeller does in a propeller aircraft. And I remember thinking, how do they get, how do they fly that fast and those bypass fans not, not hit the hit the speed of sound? How does that happen? Well, you know, just since I've been on the job for the last ten weeks, well, I found out that there's actually a reduction gearbox that was developed by NASA. So those high bypass fans actually spin at a lesser rate than the turbine themselves. And and I know that I'm getting a little wonky here, but the reality is that technology developed by NASA has increased efficiency and fuel efficiency and reduced noise in ways that, uh, you know, the the American, you know, aeronautics industry would not have made those investments yeah. because it was too high risk. But the United States government steps in with NASA, we make those investments, and now the entire world is benefiting from it, from a fuel efficiency uh, standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, and of, co of course, from a noise reduction standpoint. So again, NASA, what NASA does, it blazes a trail for generations to come. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, do you see the role of NASA changing over the next decade? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I, I think I think so. Um, you know, 
we're making so many new discoveries every day and the technology is changing so fast that in some cases, uh, NASA isn't going to necessarily have to be at the helm of certain things. And that gives us an opportunity to, you know, you think about what we're doing right now with commercial crew and commercial resupply where NASA is buying the service to get back and forth to the International Space Station rather than purchasing, owning, and operating our own rockets, we're just buying a service. Well, when it comes to data, whether we're studying the Earth or studying um, the sky, uh, you know, all of that could be data that we buy as well from commercial providers at a lesser cost. And then NASA is one customer of many customers driving down the cost and increasing the innovation as the suppliers compete on innovation. So there's, there's, I think, uh, uh, NASA will not look 10 years from now the way it looks today, just like it doesn't look today like it did 10 years ago. How can you envision a NASA and, and where we will be in space 60 years from now? Oh, goodness. I, I think what you'd have to say is we, we can't envision it. There, <laughs> technology is changing so fast. And what we're learning and discovering is happening so fast that 60 years from now, it would be impossible for me to take a guess at, at, at where we're, we are going to be. But um, I, would, I, would, I would hope that 60 years from now, we will have humans uh, living and working on Mars. I would hope that 60 years from now, we would have a permanent presence on the moon. And, and I think that with, as I said earlier, reusable rockets, the miniaturization of electronics, the advanced advancements in technology, um, I think all of that will be eminently possible. Yeah, wow. Our future in space is bright, and uh, and we just touched on a couple topics today. Well, I really want to thank you, Jim, for joining me. It's just been um, uh, tremendous having you here. You've given us all, I think, a great <laughs> Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate you very much. So until next time, this is Jim Green, and that was your Gravity Assist. <laughs>